All right, so we're going to be in John chapter 1 today. And boy, did I wrestle with this. Do I just keep taking phrases at a time or do I go for it and do several verses? Well, I'm going for it, but you may regret it soon. Now, really, we're going to dig pretty deep this morning, so kind of pay attention to the language. Be ready to sort of follow along. I'm teaching out of my Bible, so yours might read a little differently, but I'll try to point out times when that matters. (laughs) So we're in John chapter 1. Last time we uh, looked at the most astounding words a human being can ever read because of the event that it describes, and that's John 1.14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word being God, the creator, as verse 1 tells us, he became flesh. These words, we said then, are the heartbeat of our Christian faith and the centerpiece of the prologue of John's gospel. So we're in the prologue, verses 1 through 18. He's not going to tell the story until verse 19, but we've been working through this introduction. He wants us to have things in our head before he tells the story. So today we're going to finish out the prologue with uh, great trepidation. But that's the claim, uh, that God became a true man and dwelt among us. He actually came to us. Somebody once said, only God can disclose the character of God. And I think that's true. Only God can disclose the character of God. How can we know? How can tiny little creatures like us know, who live so short, who are separated from God by our our sin and the curse he's laid upon the earth, how can we know? Well, he tells us. So only God can disclose the character of God. So in a very substantial way, that's true. I mean, we can make statements about God from the things that, we, that were revealed to the prophets, for example, that we have in the, in the Bible, in the Old Testament. We can know some things about him. But our words are, are limited without actually knowing him. You know, I can read a book about George Washington and, and I can read his letters and his speeches and I'm a big George Washington fan. But I can know some true things about George Washington, but can I really know the man? Not really, not really. And I'm a man. So when you talk about knowing God, we're on a whole different scale, aren't we? I mean, he's eternal, limitless, outside of space and time, infinite in all things. What can I know about him? Well, as he interacts with his creation, I can know some things. We can determine some things about him from the way things are made. And then he revealed things about himself to the prophets. We can know some things. But we have so much more. So much more because he came down here and dwelt among us. As verse 14 says. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's amazing. And that's why it matters very much that God became flesh. To reveal himself. We said last time that the first words of verse 14 tell us two things. Where it says uh, the word became flesh. It tells us how God, how God came into the world. He became a true human being in the flesh. Didn't just appear as a man. He was a human being. A man. He went through the whole process. Well the whole process that he actually designed. Right? Gestation. Birth. Growing up growth and manhood he went through the whole process how long was he here well he dwelt with us he was here for a long time at least half a lifetime he was in his 30s when he was put to death by the people he created 
So the word became flesh and dwelt among us. It's the most astounding truth a human mind can comprehend. The most amazing thing that ever happened. Of course John just can't say that. Just say it and kind of leave it there. There's quite a bit more he wants to say. So even in verse 14 which we looked at in some depth last week. Just at that one verse there's even more there. Last time we talked about the word flesh. That it's real humanity that Jesus took unto himself. We talked about the word dwelt. How Christ was among us. How long he was with us. We talked about the word glory. The character of Jesus. And then we just kind of got started on grace and truth. Two words that we're going to see again in the text today we're, that we're going to be looking at. So, so what did I skip out of verse 14 that would, might be of interest? Hmm, we did almost everything. Well, I'm going to read it and see if you can notice what I didn't talk about. The word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. Glory as of the only begotten of the father full of grace and truth. Okay which part did I not talk much about last week? only begotten that's a that's a really interesting word only begotten from the father what does that mean well the Greek is monogonus para pater I know that means a lot to you but you can you can hear in mana the word mono you can kind of hear that that means only right so that's the only word there we don't say begotten very much in our, our world anymore. It's kind of a Christian thing to say that. But only begotten is very much part of Christian vocabulary. So the mono part means only. And that, that's used in the New Testament about God. When it talks about the only God. Romans 16.27 for example. To the only wise God. That's that word. That part of the word. Through Jesus Christ be the glory forever and ever. Or 1 Timothy 1.17. Now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God be honor and glory forever and ever. So, and there's a lot of verses like that. But you get the idea. The only God. Mono. There are no other gods. But in verse 14 of John chapter 1. Mono isn't by itself. It's part of a compound word. Right? That's when you take two words and stick them together. If you remember grammar school. Right? So mono. Monogenes. Genes. You can kind of hear in that. Only. Well we have the word genus that we use. G-E-N-U-S. Right? Now that's from high school. (laughs) That's a high school biology word. Generally. Right? Maybe they get it a little younger than that. But you have families and genus and species. Right? In, in the way we talk about cataloging animals and life forms and things like that. Several species come from one genus. That's how we say it. Well the ancient Greek word genos or genus meant race or stock like in ancestry or kin like relatives that kind of a thing. So monogenes means if you, if you take genus as meaning like kind a kind of something a category if you will. Monogenes means there's only one kind of. He's, it's, he's unique. Completely unique. There is no other being like him. He has no family. He doesn't have relatives. He doesn't have brothers and sisters. He's one of a kind. The word that became flesh. Now we are children of God as well. But we're children by adoption. And we're not of God's nature. We're not infinite or anything even close to that. right? We're creatures. So we in no way as creatures are one of his kind. His kind is 
mono. It's one. It's unique. It's only, only him. As the only begotten from the father. Jesus is the only begotten. The only begotten son. He's often called in John's gospel. By nature himself being God the son. He's unique. So John isn't done with this term. It's coming up again in today's passage. That's why I'm talking about it now. But it most famously is used in John 3.16. Right? I mean God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Right? That's, that's where the language comes from. That whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. So here in verse 14 it's, he says only begotten from the father. So there's a way in which Christ comes from the father and he's the only one like that. He's not just some other kind of being. He is uniquely divine. So let's take that and look at verse 15. Now John 1.15 is quite interesting. At first glance it actually kind of seems out of place. I think if you were reading this you'd go huh? Why is he talking about John the Baptist again? But it takes us back to verse 6 through 8 where John the Apostle is presenting John the Baptist as a witness to Christ as the light of the world. The light of men. Right? So John the Baptist's part in the story is actually going to come up right after the prologue is done starting in verse 19 and following there. But he suddenly starts picking up on him again in verse 15 as part of the prologue. So uh, why bring him in again? It sort of interrupts the flow I think. It would seem like it might do that. But let me read it and you see where you think it might fit into verse 14. So John testified about him and cried out saying this was he of whom I said he who comes after me has a higher rank than I. For, and here's the kind of the key phrase, he existed before me. Okay. What do we learn about the word become flesh from verse 14 and verse 15? Well, two things. He's greater than John the Baptist. And he existed before John the Baptist. And that's why it's here. Because he existed before John the Baptist. Well, what's so special about that? I mean, my brother existed before me. But he was born before me. That's why. If you read Luke's gospel you know that Mary when she was visited by the angel Gabriel to announce the birth of Christ um, he came to her but something had already he had already made a visitation to earth before he came to her. In fact Gabriel appeared to John the Baptist's father while he was doing his priestly functions in the temple. You remember that? He told him he was going to have a son and they made a big announcement. His wife Elizabeth was barren and he said she's not going to be barren. She's going to have a son. And Luke tells us that Elizabeth was six months pregnant with John the Baptist when Gabriel came to Mary. Okay so John the Baptist is six months older than Jesus. He existed before him. Jesus was a zygote when John was six months in the womb of his mother. So when he got born John was just a little bit older than he was right? And here John says he existed before him. Well how can that be? Well it can only be because the word of God become flesh is eternal. And John is a human being. He, has a he, he began at a point in time. We all had our beginning. And Jesus, be Jesus has had no beginning. He's eternal. We've talked about that many times already. So our essence, our personhood as human beings begins with our creation. 
but the person of the word, the Lagos, has always been. So immediately our minds go back to verse one. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was, the word was God. The word was with God and the word was God. Verse two, he was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him and apart from him nothing came into being that has come into being. So the word, the Lagos, was already there when everything had its beginning and everything that exists outside of God himself, he created. The word created and then the word became flesh. And this comports perfectly with what the Old Testament actually says about the Messiah. Micah chapter 5 verse 2 as for you Bethlehem Ephrathah too little to be among the clans of Judah for one will go forth from for me to be the ruler in Israel his goings forth are from long ago from the days of eternity. So it was prophesied in the Old Testament that the Messiah would be an eternal being. He's pre-existing all of creation. Isaiah chapter 9 verse 6 his name will be called wonderful counselor mighty God eternal father prince of peace you can translate eternal father as the father of eternity he actually created all things all the eternal things he invented space and time he invented all the things that are on the earth so he's before all of it he's eternal also the book of Revelation John the Apostle the same man that wrote this book has a vision of the exalted Christ the risen Christ in uh, Revelation chapter 1 it says he says when I saw him I fell at his feet like a dead man and he placed his right hand on me saying do not be afraid I am the first and the last and that's language that God uses about himself in the Old Testament in Isaiah chapter 46 I'm the first and the last Isaiah 44 6 actually so Christ is the eternal God so John the Baptist's declaration that Jesus existed before him is another confirmation a clear statement of the divine nature of the son so that's pretty clear I hope right so far we're good somebody say yeah yeah good thank you I heard that all right so now from here the final verses of the prologue expand on the two words at the end of verse 14 which are grace and truth so when John says in verse 14 that Christ is full of grace and truth we realize from the eternal nature of Christ that when it says he's full of grace and truth that is eternally full. He's completely full. There's no limits on him. There's no limits on his grace. And he says in verse 16 for of his fullness we have all received and grace upon grace. So Jesus has all the divine qualities of God in their fullness. He doesn't lack anything. And we are the beneficiaries of that fullness. So the word became flesh to reveal God to us. In him we see God. All there is to know about God that we need we find in him. That's John's point. The most important things we find in him are grace and truth. Verse 17, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. So let me briefly um, mention that this is the first use by John of the name Jesus. So now he's using his human name. Why? Because the word became flesh. Before that it was the word, the Lagos, the eternal being, but who was from the Father. And now he's on earth 
He's talking about him incarnate as a man. So now he uses his name Jesus. That's the first use. It, that whole prologue has gone all the way down to verse 17 without mentioning his human name. But now he's in it. Now he's in it. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. So the man Jesus, God as man coming to his people whom he had called out. He brings grace and truth. Does our world understand grace and truth? Does, does our world present grace and truth as the way to go? Does it even understand what those words mean? Now I think in general, general terms the world has some kind of opinion about grace being a good thing. If, if you define grace the way Christians do as unmerited favor, I think everybody wants that, right? Yeah, I want you to treat me great no matter how I behave. That would, that would be the worldly way of looking at that. Undeserved favor. That sounds really good. But the world is less inclined to give grace to other people. So they don't really understand grace. In fact, if you say anything against the prevailing cultural orthodoxies, you're a bad guy, right? You're a bigot, an enemy, uh, you need to be canceled, all that kind of stuff. So worldly grace doesn't really even allow for dialogue and doesn't listen very well, but people want that grace. Truth is, truth is the real sticking point though for our world today. The word truth has suffered quite a bit in, in recent years. I mean, as you move into a post-Christian world, that has meant moving into a post-truth world. I'm not sure people were expecting that to happen, but that's actually what happened. So our culture has finally, and predictably, because some people said this would happen, has given up on the idea of truth. Truth is what you want it to be, right? Which completely guts the very meaning of the word truth, but that doesn't matter anymore. So truth is whatever you feel. I was watching an on the street interview the other day. Actually, it was an on the campus interview. They were talking to college students, and the question they were asking them, they said, um, what words or terms, if I said them, you would say I was transphobic, okay? I was against trans people, I, I hated trans people. So one question was, he said, if I use the term biological male, is that transphobic? And a few of them said, well, you know, that's coming right up to the line there, you gotta be really careful saying that. But most said, yes, that's absolutely transphobic to say a biological male, to just use that language. Why? Why would that be a hateful thing to say? Because if they say they are female and you say they are a biological male, you are denying their, thank you, that's right, you're denying their truth, right? Because they have a truth and you're trying to deal in, well, Facts, I guess, but, um, but that's not truth. Facts are not truth necessarily, they're truth. The truth is what you'd like it to be, it's how you feel, not what actually is. And interestingly, right after I saw that interview, just a little bit later, uh, I, I found an article was saying that the Associated Press, the AP as they call it, one of the major press things, just told all of their writers and reporters that they are not allowed to use the term biological sex. They can't use that term. So truth, for our culture, at least the elites in our culture, and they're trying to force it on everybody, is entirely personal. It's not objective, it's personal. What you believe is what is true. See, Western civilization thought that if we dropped God, then we'd be all into truth because scientific truth, measurable reality is the only thing left. Whoa, that was so naive. That was so naive. 
But that's what they actually thought. They talked about it in that way. I don't hear anybody talking about the objective realities of science and dealing with the issues that the world is dealing with today. I don't hear it anymore. They used to say that all the time. What does science say? But now even science is questionable in truth. You know, they actually are talking. It's all this stuff's filtering out into science, medicine, even archaeology. There was a whole discussion about if you dig up bones and they're the bones of a woman, do you know what gender that person was? Nope. (laughs) So archaeologists have to start writing in these sort of sweeping terms to not identify people by their bone structure. So it's just getting weirder and weirder and weirder. Because without God, objective truth just couldn't hang on. It just couldn't hang on in our culture. And I guess that's because people are meant to be religious. We're designed to have beliefs and uh, to, to worship God. So since that's taken away from us or we don't want him, we substitute some other ideology that will act like a religion. So because we're made for purpose and meaning and mere biology doesn't give us those things. So we have to create meaning. Well, if you drop God, you're going to create meaning in some other different, some other way, some different way to do that. So man's problem, the problem of the human race biblically is that we seek meaning apart from the center of all things, which is God himself, our creator. So we, it gets weirder and weirder. Humans are sinful, right? And without the spirit of God, they will always eventually twist and misuse every good gift that God has given us. It's just human nature. We're rebellious by nature. And now we're rebelling against science because that claims to be truth. And we're not going to be hemmed in by your ideas or your facts. That's kind of where people are. So if you think the world is losing its collective mind, which I do, I think so. The world is self-harming. Why would they do that? It's human nature. It's human nature. Fallen human nature. Sadly, misusing, misusing the words truth and misusing the word grace robs them of their power. And that's why they have so little power in our culture. But grace and truth as John uses them, oh my goodness. These words are far greater and far more robust ideas than our culture can even understand now. This is because John is talking about God's grace and God's truth. So it has a great power. Truth is what is real. It's what God made. And truth is what God our creator declares to be true. So truth is what God said. What he said about us. What he says about everything else. And for us the greatest challenge as fallen creatures is to embrace the moral and spiritual truths that God reveals. And it's hard for us because we're fallen creatures. So to help us, what God did first was give us rules. God spoke through Moses. In the Bible we call that the law, right? Last week I think I was calling it the lecture. (laughs) The creator gets to say what is right and wrong. I know it sounds crazy, but the creator of all things gets to say what's right and wrong. It's it's actually his, his decision. So we look at the law, the moral law, and if we actually take that, look at it as kind of a mirror of our own lives, we go, wow, I fall really short of that law. My goodness. The law condemns me. The law condemns me. It identifies me as a sinner. Now that's a good thing. Because if we don't look at our true condition in the light of the truth, we'll never seek or care about the remedy for our condition that God has provided. 
And that's where grace comes in. Jesus brought truth and grace, right? We need both. And when Jesus came unto his own, as verse 11 in John 1 says, they didn't want him. They didn't want him. Amazingly, but unsurprisingly, if you really understand how messed up human beings are, the people who had God's holy law and who had disobeyed it for centuries, century after century, then finally said, well, we're going to obey it. And Jesus came to those people that said, we're going to obey it. God's rules, God's will. Over time, they twisted it, reshaped it misused it, misinterpreted it, misrepresented the law to make themselves puffed up, to make themselves feel good about themselves. And when Jesus came, when the word became flesh and came to those people, that's what he found. And that's the reason for the Sermon on the Mount. If you ever read Matthew 5 through 7, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is taking the law and saying, this is what it means. And if you take the Sermon on the Mount and evaluate yourself, it has that effect that was originally meant to have and you go, my goodness, I fall way short of this. That's not me being described in this. So Jesus was lifting the law. And if we're honest and we look at the law, then we fall down on our knees before the truth, God's truth, and we say, Lord, I need a savior. God forgive me, I need a savior. I'm an unworthy sinner. Save me, Jesus Christ. That's the natural response. And he can. He can save us. He came to save us. The cross of Jesus has always been God's plan. The Father's will. And Jesus always intended to take the great burden of our sin upon himself. And bear it for us. That's grace. Grace is saves the unworthy. Grace redeems the fallen. Grace makes mercy real and applied to your your very being from God. And grace and truth are perfectly seen together in the person of Jesus Christ. The character of Jesus and the teaching of Jesus. He never compromised truth ever. Never made excuses or watered down the law. And yet he was full of compassion for the lost and the sinner and the wayward and the guilty. So verse 14 says he was full of grace and truth. Verse 16 says for of his fullness we have all received And grace upon grace. That's a great Hebraic way of saying. All the grace you need is found in him. And it's unending. Grace upon grace. The stream of grace ever flows from Jesus Christ. It doesn't run out. He has a limitless supply of grace. Unmerited favor towards you. Now. Verse 18. Verse 18 tells us how reliable and valuable Jesus is as the source of truth. So we've talked about grace. Now let's talk about truth a little more. And verse 18, those are the final words of the introduction. The things John wants you to know, to have in your head before he tells you the story of Jesus. And we've already learned so much. But here's John's concluding thought to lead you into his account of Jesus of Nazareth the word become flesh the last verse of the prologue and he's going to use that word begotten again monogenes that that Greek word 
So here John will tell us how intimately connected Jesus is with the Father. And what grace and truth mean in contrast to the law of Moses. It all comes together right here in the last verse of the prologue. So John's main point is that Jesus Christ is God made clear. You see God in Jesus because that's who he is. And that's the story then that John will tell about him. Okay. So Moses revealed truth about God. You learn things about God from Moses. But Jesus is God. He's God himself revealed in a person. So verse 18. Here we go. No one has seen God at any time. Now my Bible reads. The only begotten God. We'll talk about that. The only begotten God. Who is in the bosom of the Father. He has explained him. So verse 18 actually starts with the word God. Now. Hey, in my Bible it starts with no one. I know it starts with my Bible that way too. No one. No one has seen God at any time. In English, we normally put the subject at the begi- beginning and then, right? And then the direct object after it normally. Greek, in Greek you can switch it around any way you want to. So uh, you can do that for emphasis. So John actually takes the word God, even though it's the direct object, and moves it to the front of the sentence. You're allowed to do that in Greek. So John does it for emphasis. So If you were reading it straight in Greek it would say God no one has seen at any time. Because he wants to make a definite point about that. Usually when you're talking about seeing God I don't know when Bible students talk about seeing God and debate seeing God they start thinking about visions and appearances and what they call theophanies appearances of God in the Old Testament and discuss how those are only glimpses or partial sightings of God and then you go to Exodus chapter 33 when Moses said God show me your glory and God stuck him in a crevice and said I, you can't see my glory and live so I'll, I'll pass by and you can just see my trailing glory remember that that's usually where your mind goes with when you read something like this but I don't think the context here is really about what our eyes see it's about the eyes of our heart our understanding <coughs> Jesus uses the word see in the gospel pretty frequently about having a a spiritual understanding and I think that's the point here for example in John chapter 9 you know Jesus heals a blind man the Pharisees get all mad about it because it happened on the Sabbath and when the formerly blind man professes faith in Jesus Jesus says to the man this is John 9 39 for judgment I came into this world so that those who do not see may see and that those who see may become blind and he means blind to the truth in other words the Pharisees the self-righteous those that misinterpreted and misused the law to puff themselves up they thought they could see and Jesus said I came to show that they can't they don't see they don't get it but this guy who put his faith in Jesus he got it so Jesus came that those who do not see may see and of course the physical healing is just a picture of all of that so seeing is I understand seeing is I understand leading to faith not seeing is I don't get it I reject it that's not seeing in the way Jesus uses that word John 12:45. he who sees me sees the one who sent me and I have come as light into the world so that everyone who believes in me will not remain in darkness. If you're in darkness you can't see. If you're in spiritual darkness you can't 
see, you can't understand. That's what he's talking about there. So darkness is a spiritual condition and Christ brings light, understanding of who God really is and what he's done. And that's the theme we've already seen in the prologue because Christ has been called the light. Like verse 9, there was the true light which coming into the world enlightens every man, right? So this is about spiritual understanding and there's a lot of revelation about God in the Old Testament but it's not complete. It's like the Old Testament is like elementary school. In fact Paul actually calls it the elementary things of the world, the elementary principles. And that's why John has emphasized this idea of fullness with regard to Christ coming into the world that we saw in verse 14 and verse 16. Men didn't see the fullness of God. Men couldn't see the fullness of God until Jesus came. And certainly we didn't see the fullness of God's self-sacrificial love. We knew God loved people but not to the point of bearing the sins of the world. People did not see that until it happened. That was not anticipated and now we know so much more about God's love, about God's grace. We know because we see it in Christ. So humanity who, who people lost in darkness, they need to know what God has revealed about himself, especially in relationship to our redemption, which we need to be redeemed from our sin. And our adoption into God's family. We need to know how that's even possible. So folks, you can actually know your creator. You can actually know his purpose for you. And why things are the way they are. You can know that. And God's solution to human wickedness. God's solution to your need, to my need. And his solution is all built around this one person who was with God and was God and became flesh. Jesus, God who became flesh. So now I want to talk for just a second about verse 18, the only begotten God. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. So that's the, that's the next use of monogamous, that same word, only begotten or one of a kind. Some of you might have a Bible that says only begotten son, right? Anybody got one of those? There you go. Yeah, so, or maybe in a more modern translation it would say one and only son, using that uniqueness idea of genus, genus, right? So, but many um, newer translations, a lot of the newer translations, like my beautiful, glorious New American Standard 1995 says, it says the only begotten God, or other translations might say the one and only God, I think the NIV says that. So um, this is quite a difference actually. So when they translated the King James Bible over 400 years ago, all the Greek manuscripts they had, and they didn't have a whole lot, they all said only begotten son right there in verse 18. But then not, well, long after that, but some time ago, archaeology found manuscripts that said only begotten God in John instead of only begotten son. And they were very early they go way back. So, and some of the early church fathers say only begotten God when they're quoting John as well. In fact, one of John's grandchildren in the faith uses both when he's writing. He says only begotten, quoting John, he's, he says only begotten son and in other places he says only begotten God. So he was aware of both versions of that as well, which is really interesting because that goes way back to the second century. So anyway, all, all I have to say about that is um, it's hard to know which one is actually correct or was the original wording that John used. Usually the more surprising variant they call it in a manuscript is 
probably the legitimate one. So that's why a lot of modern translations favor it saying the only begotten God. It's kind of shocking, only begotten God. It kind of jumps out at you. It's just another affirmation of the divinity of Christ. Doesn't matter though because he's already proven that Jesus is God like a bunch of times in the prologue and the whole gospel is built on that idea. But Jesus is called the only, only begotten son in John 3.16 and in several other places in John's gospel. So that's certainly true too. If it is only begotten God then there's two ways you can read this. One would be that only begotten is an adjective describing like like the great God. This is the only begotten God. So the, the son of Christ is the only begotten God. It describes Jesus as a one of a kind God or that phrase can stand next to so be only begotten can stand next to the word God doing the same thing in grammar being a substantive. It, so the way you would translate it or read it would be um, only begotten comma God who is in the bosom of the Father he has explained him. In fact the next part of it who is in the bosom of the Father that would serve the same purpose. So it's like three things in a row. So in other words he would be saying no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father he has explained him. Does that make sense? So you can translate it that way too or read it that way. Both are legit. I actually like that way. Somebody said no I don't understand at all. That's okay. <laughs> so the phrase, the phrase who is in the bosom of the Father could be the third part of that that stands with begotten God and who is in the bosom of the Father. And all of those three things would describe he in the last phrase of verse 18. Okay. What does it say about he? So we're getting there. So that phrase um, describes the son's relationship to the father. Who is in the bosom of the father? Let's talk about that. That's a beautiful phrase. Who is in the bosom of the father. What's the bosom? It's right here, right? It's up close. It speaks of love, of intimate relationship. And that expression harkens all the way back to verse 1 where it says in the beginning was the word and the word was with God. There's a relationship word. But that's kind of a cold word. I mean it talks about closeness with God. There's, it's, it's the idea is sort of in there. But this one, this phrase in the bosom of the father it goes way beyond that. This is an emotional, deep emotional connection here. On your bosom, up close to your heart. I mean that's where you hold babies, right? That's where you hold toddlers when toddlers are sleeping on you or sitting on you or you're carrying them around they lay their head on your bosom right. But it, what, that's where your wife lays her head when you embrace it's like it's unless she's taller than you then, then you're laying your head on her neck or something but um, but if she's the right size good size darling but uh, <laughs> she, she lays her head on, on your bosom right. That's where you cuddle kittens it's where you stroke puppies I mean that's that's where you that's where the, the tender affection place right that's what that is on your bosom. So John wants you to enter the story of Jesus with that in your mind. Uh, before entering this world that was the relationship he had with the eternal father. He comes from his bosom. He was in the bosom of the father. The one who came from the father's bosom that one became flesh. And that one reveals God to us. Who could do it better or more thoroughly than him? 
in telling us about God, revealing God, right? No one, not Moses, not Moses. Some translations like the NIV, it says he made him known at the end of verse 18, but I, I like explained better. So at the end it says he has explained him. Moses could give us the law, but Christ can explain better than that. The law tells us true things about God, but Christ is God. So everything we see about him, everything we hear about him tells us about God's nature, his character, what he's like, everything about him. In fact, the word explained is an interesting word too. It's, it, here I go again, Greek stuff. Exegeomai, exa, that we get our word, there's a Christian word, that does, most people don't know this word, but have you ever heard exegesis? That's what I'm doing right now, I'm trying. <laughs> I'm exegeting a text. That means I'm taking a text and I'm trying to explain it to you, right? That's, that's what that word means. And that's actually, it actually comes from the Greek word that's used here, that in my Bible is translated explained. The King James says declared. But when we think of declared, we think, I'm making a declaration now. That's not what it meant when they translated the King James Bible. Declared, in old, even not that long ago, last century, I mean, declared, when you say declared, it means to explain or to interpret or to make clear. Read old English books. He declare unto, you know, the, the declaration is, is an explanation. So when it says um, he has declared him in the King James Bible, that means explain. That's exactly how that word, that's a good word. So Jesus explains God, not just in words, but his person explains God. John Phillips, who's a, he wrote a commentary on John, he says this really well. He said, the person who expounds or exegetes the scripture, which is what I'm trying to do right now, that person brings out things that were there all the time for people to see, but things that had been overlooked until they were thus brought forth. Jesus is the incarnate exegesis of God. He has brought God forth, set him before us fully, accurately. He has authoritatively expounded him in what he is, what he has said, in what he has done. For although Jesus was man in every sense of the word, he was also God in all the dimensions of deity. That is what verse 18 tells us. The whole prologue tells us. Jesus himself makes this very clear in the Last Supper. We read that passage earlier in the service today. Do you remember John 14? Jesus was talking about going away, right? I'll, I'll prepare a place for you. And he said, you know the way where I am going. And Thomas goes, no, we don't know. What do you mean you know, we know the way where you're going? We don't know the way where you're going. How do we know the way? And the answer to that, Jesus says, one of his most famous statements, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. That's John 14, 6. And we don't ever talk about verse 7, which follows that immediately. But there Jesus said, if you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you know him and have seen him. Why? Because they know Jesus. So they do know the Father through him. Right there is 
exactly how complete is the exegesis of God to human beings like us in the person of Jesus Christ. From now on you know him and have seen with your heart. Have seen him. And still not getting it, Philip, like Moses back in Exodus 33, wants to see the Father. He wants to see him. He wants more of God. Verse 8 of John 14, Lord, show us the Father. It is enough for us. And Jesus says, have I been with you so long and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. There isn't any more of God that you can get, that you can see right here and now. That's what he's telling him. He is God. And you can't get any more of God than him. So with the words of John 1.18 fresh in our minds, the only begotten God or only begotten Son who was in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. With that in our minds, now we're ready to embark on the account of the life and ministry of Jesus by his closest friend, John the Apostle. Remember, John's gospel is very different from Matthew, Mark, and Luke. He takes way less stories. He just takes a few. And he uses those to teach all the things that were there in the prologue through Jesus' own words and actions. Much more detailed stories than the other gospels, but much fewer. So, are you ready to learn those things? Next Sunday, that's when we'll start. (laughs) Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the word become flesh. The word full of grace and truth. The word that explains you. He has taken through his very being, his coming into this world as a man. He has taken all that you are and put it in a human package for us. And those that walked with him were walking with God literally. And we by faith walk in the same way. Knowing God through his son. We thank you for him. We give you glory. And we pray that we will never let that go. That we will build our life on the word become flesh. In his name we pray. Amen.